0: I'd invite you to pull out your little sermon notes, if you'd like, and you can doodle if that helps uh, helps you stay on track. You can jot some notes down and some things. There's just a a few fill-ins to do this morning, but might help you with staying focused. Uh, so we're in this series on the stories and sermons of Jesus. I want you to take a moment right now and just think about what stories you're listening to. What are the stories that you're hearing and listening to? Um, because make no mistake, from kindergarten through the movies that you might be watching, stories teach. Stories are preaching a message. They're, they're teaching lessons to you. And you really become like those you listen to. When we started this series, I showed this slide that your attention sets your direction. That is, whatever you pay attention to, that's what your, that's what your God really is. Your Attention sets your direction. This is precisely why we are focused on the stories and sermons of Jesus. There's a lot of stories going on up there. There's lots of teaching. There's lots of advice. We are setting our eyes on Jesus. Proverbs 17.24 says this. Sensible people keep their eyes glued on wisdom, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. We've probably been fools before, haven't we? Where our eyes are just darting after the latest shiny thing. Proverbs tells us to set our eyes, keep it glued on wisdom. If you're a Christian in here this morning, my challenge is this. Stay close to Jesus. Listen to him. Devote yourself to him. That's why you're sitting in here this morning, right? I mean, we're singing about what he's done. We're longing to hear from him about what he has for our life not what the pastor has, not what other people might give us input. Jesus, we want to hear from you. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Christian, when it's easy, rejoice. Some of you in here are just, things are going great. Awesome. We celebrate that with you. Rejoice. It's not going to last forever, right? So rejoice while it's going good. If you've barely drug yourself in here this morning and life is going terrible and you're filled with doubts and wondering, keep hanging on. Keep trusting. Keep close to Jesus. I'm thrilled that you're here. Don't settle for skimmed over conclusions of mine or anyone else. Go directly to the source. And that's what we're wanting to highlight in this this sermon series. We're wanting to just put forth the words of Jesus and say, here, what does this say to you? You listen to it. I know that with us, every single week, there are undecided people. That means there are people who are here kind of checking out, what is Christianity all about? What does it mean to be a person of faith as it relates to to Jesus Christ? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? Welcome, thrilled that you're here. You're not alone. Here's my invitation. Don't go along with the cartoonish snapshot of Jesus But begin to see what he's really about. Beyond what's offered by little snippets and bumper stickers and little sound bites on TV, just hear for yourself what this Jesus is all about. We're going to look at a passage this morning that doesn't show up in a lot of sermons. It's not one of the better known parables or stories that Jesus told, but it's worth listening to and it's worth gleaning some truth from. This morning, Jesus is talking more about the kingdom of heaven. Remember in this series, over and over, we're hearing the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. He keeps talking to us about this. Every time he's mentioning the kingdom of heaven is like, what he's doing is uh, he's parenting us. He's remaking our thought patterns. He's changing our values. He's taking our concerns and he's kind of reframing them from what it's like in the kingdom. All this in light of a greater story. Today, what he goes after in part is the futility of religion. The futility of religion. And I would define religion in this sense as this. Working hard for that which can't be earned. Working hard for that which can't be earned. That's the futility of religion that Jesus goes after. That which can't be earned is grace and forgiveness. Those are two things, no matter how hard you work. The Bible calls it a vain pursuit, chasing after the wind, right? It's working hard for something that you can't possibly earn. The second you earn grace, is it grace anymore? Say no. No. It it eradicates it. It's no longer grace at that point. Part of the elite religious code is this. The elite religious people of the day were the Pharisees. And Kirk did a great job of kind of going through scribes and lawyers and Pharisees and, and the Sanhedrin and kind of this, these, these groups that they formed. And their basic premise was this. Let's create a works system that is impossible for most, but possible for a few. Remember that from last week? So now we're going to talk about the religious elite code. Here's part of it, okay? It would be raise your right hand and say this. We detest mercy being given to those who, unlike us, haven't worked for it and don't deserve it. Okay, You read the Gospels, you look at the Pharisees, this is part of their code. I don't know if that's the exact wording, but that's what they emote as they go through life, right? When they get together at their meetings, raise your right hand and repeat after me. These are some of the things that pour and flow out of the elite religious people. What people deserve and what is fair is really, really, really common in our everyday life. Um, I just began thinking about how often this term is used and how often people are making these judgments about what's fair and unfair, what people deserve and don't deserve. And I realized, man, I live amongst a people filled with judges. They're not wearing the weird wigs from you know England. They're not wearing robes. No one stands in honor. They don't hold a gavel. But make no mistake, we are all walking around as little judges making judgments. Let me give you a few things. Here's in sports. That team really deserved to win. That's a judgment. How about in the legal sense? After what he did, he deserves to go to prison. How about in relationships? She doesn't deserve him, right? We say this all the time. What are we doing? We're making little judgments about who deserves what, what's fair, and what isn't fair. So what is fair? What is just? Let me take you back <clears throat> a couple of years when, when uh, we are the 99%, right? Occupy Wall Street. Here's a, here's a picture where it puts these two together. The We are the 99%, and what's the next sign say? We, what? Deserve change, right? Making a proclamation about what, what is deserved. These guys are making the news a bunch right now. What is someone who's committing the atrocities that ISIS is committing? What do they deserve? What would be fair treatment of them? And if you've been even half paying attention to the news recently, there are citizens and their police in the city of Baltimore, and there's massive unrest and conflict going on. What is fair? What is fair in that situation? Who deserves what? Just listen to any news channel you will hear a cry for justice. You will hear the word deserve. You will hear about fairness. This is everywhere. It's on the forefront of our minds. We learned pretty early that life isn't fair, right? I want you just silently right now to think of some genetic proportion of your body that you wish were different. Don't raise your hand. Don't point to it. I don't want to cause any shame. But chances are you're not going, huh, I'm the perfect specimen. I can't think of a single proportion that I would change. No! There's something about you that you're like, oh, I wish I was different! Just look at your genetics and realize life is unfair, right? How about your geography? How many of you were born here in San Jose? Raise your hand. I, I am so thrilled, you can put your hand down. I am so thrilled that I was born near the beach. I mean, that's just, that's just geography. I didn't choose where I was born. I'm thrilled to live where I get to live. I was in San Antonio recently. Love my grandparents. Don't love San Antonio. It's a nice place to visit, don't get me wrong. But I thought, you know how far I would have to drive to get to the beach? And if I did, I would be on the Gulf and there's very little waves there. It's nothing like our coast. So geography is, is unfair. It's unfair that you were born here and someone halfway around the world was born in a place where it's, it's a fight to stay alive every single day. Life is unfair. unfair. Here's our question on our minds this morning that I want to frame the parable, frame the story around. And that's this question. God, are you fair? Here's what I think is true. I think every one of us in this room have stated beliefs about what we would say that we believe. And they're true. We do believe them. Our stated beliefs would show up in our doctrinal statements. They would show up in our songs about what we sing that we know and believe is true about God. Right? Those are our stated beliefs. But there's a whole other side to us that resides over here, and it's our unstated beliefs. And our unstated beliefs are often a little bit darker we always wonder kind of is it is it safe to voice these unstated beliefs about god they start off as questions often but when you start thinking about what god is like fill in this god is blank what comes to your mind i think for many of us in this room some of our stated beliefs would pop into our minds And be 100% true. We believe these to be true. God is generous. God is gracious. God's full of mercy. God's patient. We believe all those things. We state them. We sing them. We talk about them. But don't you also have other sides to your belief system? Something like this. God is silent. God is harsh. God is untrustworthy. It almost makes us uncomfortable hearing that in church. Is a pastor allowed to say those things? We certainly think them. We certainly believe them at times. You know how I know when we act in a way that doesn't trust what God says is the best for us? Aren't we saying by our actions, God, you're untrustworthy. I can't trust you. Once you get this question, God, are you there, settled in your heart and mind? And for many of us, that's happened. We're settled on that. Sooner or later, life raises thorny other kinds of questions, and one of them, this will come about. God, not God, are you there, but God, are you fair? Life circumstances come up, and you start to wonder that. God, are you fair? All right, I need two volunteers. Two volunteers. My kids always volunteer first. I love that. Um, Cassie, I'm going to pick you, and Melissa, come on up. Awesome. Awesome. This is perfect. Come on up. Come up here and stand right up here and face our church family. And I have a little. So, you guys thought this guitar case was left up here accidentally. It wasn't. Okay. Um, I need you actually to turn and face one another. I know that you know this rock, paper, scissors. Okay? We're not doing two out of three. We're doing one. Okay. This is just to decide who goes first. And it's on the third thing. I'm going to say one, two, three. And on three, you have to do, you have to do your, your pick. Everyone clear? Okay. You ready? On to your hand. And I'm going to, I'm going to count it off. One, two, three. Again. One, two, three. Okay. Who wins? Melissa wins. All right. Give it up for Melissa. That was the easiest applause you ever earned, right there. Okay, now, what I have in here is two options to choose from, okay? We have the small and we have the large. So you get to pick your option of which one you would like to choose. And she chose the smaller one. Wow. Cassie? Now, before you choose, there's actually a bonus choice, okay? Here's the bonus choice, okay? That's right. you got it Brian Jackson. So, as going second, you get to choose between this one or this one. She almost couldn't she almost couldn't contain herself. I've taught my children to be very resourceful. Grab it before they change their mind. All right? Now, give it up for these two. You guys can go ahead and sit down now. Thank you very much. These are for me to snack on and keep my energy up while I while I go. Now, we had an adult participate, and Melissa is a selfless person. She's a teacher, for Pete's sake. Teachers are selfless people. Um, you guys have the option of sharing, by the way. Here's what, here's what just went on. In, in looking at rock, paper, scissors, you probably thought in your mind, that's, that's pretty fair. That's a fair way to settle who gets to go first. Cause we can't just arbitrarily pick. If Dave picked, if I picked my daughter, you would all suspect, well, that's kind of unfair. She's your daughter. You just picked her because of that, right? So, Rock, paper, scissors, we were probably all good with. And then to see the choices, you thought, well, gosh, that's a little bit unfair. What if Melissa was really hungry today and took the bigger one? You would have all had your little sense of fairness violated for Cassie, right? Because she had, had to get the smaller one. But then when the second choice came up, you thought, oh, gosh, that's kind of unfair. Now back to Melissa. And then some of you are thinking, what about all the starving children in service today? They didn't get any M&Ms at all. Do you see how this works? Our story today kind of, kind of does this. It's actually sandwiched between two times where Jesus says this, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Anyone hear that growing up? I grew up in a Christian home. I heard that often. Okay, I had no idea what that meant except for this. Normally when it was said, it was trying to quell some argument between my three brothers and I about fighting for first place to get something feeding time at our house was a little bit like the zoo when they throw you know meat into the lion cage. I mean, we just we had to eat quick because there's four hungry boys to feed. And usually it was said, if it was said to me, usually it meant, Dave, you're going to go last this time. You're in last place. And it was almost like a pat on the head. Ah, but at least the last shall be first and the first shall be last. I thought, well, that doesn't help me at all. I'm in last place. I have to go to the very end. None of us believed it. None of us. You know why? No one was begging for last place. No one. So I still wasn't overly clear what that was growing up. So we all talk about fair. Before we read the story, turn to Matthew chapter 20, by the way. That's where we'll be. Before we talk exactly about what's fair or what's not fair, let me just say this. If by fair you mean even Stephen then God is not fair. Let me give you just a few examples of this. Okay, If you know your scriptures or if you're reading through the Bible right now, you will find this pop up all over the place. Let me just give you a few. The Old Testament sacrificial system. The Old Testament sacrificial system uh, ordained what sacrifice was supposed to be brought for the atonement of sin. Okay, So, buy this animal, uh, do the sacrifice in this way. And then God makes makes an allotment for this. It says, if you are unable, if you don't have the means for this animal in this way, then bring basically a cup of flour. And that cup of flour will suffice for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what what we would commend about that is that's God looking out for the heart for the poor. It's all over the scripture. But is that even Stephen? Absolutely not. Someone else is standing there saying, I had to do this much. This person's bringing a cup of flour and their sins are forgiven. That's not even Stephen. Let's go into the New Testament. Only 12 disciples are picked to watch and follow closely Jesus Christ as he spends his three and a half some years on earth, getting taught and doing ministry and being in close, intimate fellowship. That's not equitable. There was a lot of other people that weren't picked. How about the fact that three of them were handed backstage passes for him to go be transfigured, right? The Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is seen in all his glory. How many got to do it? Three. Who's good at math? How many are left out? How many? Nine others don't get to see that. That's not even, Stephen. That's not very fair. How about the fact that Jesus, when he starts his ministry, proclaims that he's here to set the captives free, right? And then his own cousin, John the Baptist, is imprisoned. He's literally got his head on the chopping block. He's in prison, and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and he says, hey, are you the Messiah? Or is there someone else coming? What's the deal? You know what Jesus does? Remember what he says back to those disciples? He says, go and report back to John what's happening. The good news is being proclaimed to the poor, and the blind are are given sight. These miracles are happening but there's no special love for cousin John. John doesn't get freed from prison. He doesn't get his head off the chopping block. He healed other people. He released other captives, but not his own coven, not even Stephen. One more, the fact that he healed many, but not all. Oftentimes, the gospel writers will record, and Jesus left that place after doing some healings and people searching him out and others wanting demons to be uh, cast out of their life and healings from various ailments, and it says he moved on to other towns. Well, that's not even. Not everyone got equal treatment. He didn't heal every passing person that, 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 he, that he was in contact with. So if you mean by is God fair, is God even Stephen, the answer is quite clearly no. So all we get from that is that God is not a communist, right? Right? That's tweetable, right? I learned at church today, God's not a communist. Great. But maybe fair in the kingdom looks a little different. The setup of the story is basically this. There's a landowner who's hiring out people. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Follow along with me if you'd like. Jesus talking, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius, and when, he, and when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, the last, these last only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So five different time frames are talked about in this parable. Early, we don't know exactly what that is. But the other ones correspond to this, 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., and then 5 p.m. The workday would have ended probably around 6 p.m. So those are kind of in our context when the landowner goes out to the marketplace to hire in these workers. There's a time of reckoning that comes. It's the end of the day to settle accounts. And, of course, the rub comes in reverse order, that the landowner chooses to pay the people, right? Those who come in and work one hour get a full day's wage. That's what a denarius would have been. And those who worked all day weren't upset until they saw the payment of those first people and realized they got exactly the same amount. Now, let's not edit the Bible to fit and kind of make excuses for God. I bet what's rolling through your mind when you read that story is, yeah, I think I might grumble too. It's not fair. It's not fair. It kind of violates our sense of fairness. Here's a question. Who is snooping around trying to figure out what others got paid? It's not likely those who got paid first, those who worked for one hour, right? They are not the ones looking around wondering what everyone else got paid. They got paid a full day's wage for standing idle thinking no one was going to hire them that day. They worked for one hour and they get paid the, the full amount. Do you see that when you receive mercy, you no longer care about who deserves what and fairness? That's not, let's let bygones be guide bygones. Let's just celebrate, right? They're thrilled that they got the payment. If, however, you earned it, then the opposite is true. You care a lot. You make it your goal to make sure that everyone else had to work as hard as you did to get it. You want to make sure that no one is getting off easy. Let me put this into a modern day context for a quick moment. Let's say that you got a promotion at work or students. Let's say you open your report card in a few weeks and you get the A. If you don't think you earned this, then you stay quiet about who deserves what. You don't rush to schedule a meeting with the boss, and you don't want to talk and and do all these things. Mercy prompts us not to tally up the score. You insert mercy into the equation, and we no longer want to talk about who deserves what. Let me be really clear about something from this passage. No one in this passage is working for their salvation. We know this because this is not how the kingdom of God works. He's not talking about those who work, and then they get saved. We know this because the good news Jesus proclaimed is quite simply this. It's an announcement that something has been done for you without any help from you. Okay? So let's set that aside, that this is not working for our salvation. So what does this say about kingdom living? You're going to talk about this more in your community group, so you can come up with more answers, but here's just a few things to get you started. God... The landowner in the story graciously seeks out and then puts to use people standing around with no means to feed themselves. Think about this society and what a gracious act it is to be hired on. Think Great Depression, where you would see signs, no, no men needed, we, no more work today, right? But, but other days, everyone's there just clamoring, pick, I'll do whatever, pick me. Why? Because I've got babies at home and they need to eat. It's a gracious thing for someone to come and put to work people who were needing it in a culture with no safety net, no government help, no welfare. God, the landowner, comes through on the promise that he's made. There is a day of reckoning, and he rewards as he has promised. In addition, he goes over and above in his generosity with those who were hired last. So back to our question, is God fair? Here's what we know from this story. It's, it's certainly not that God is unfair. In other words, no one was underpaid. It's just that some were treated with unreasonable generosity. And maybe that's part of what Jesus is getting at about the kingdom of God. There is going to be unreasonable, irrational generosity going on. God's grace is not limited by our ideas of fairness and equality. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Isn't it possible to shout loudly for justice and demand what's fair and then be given exactly what you were due and then you find yourself backpedaling as quickly as possible and say, I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it, I don't want what's fair, never mind. Any of you ever been pulled over? You don't need to raise your hand. You're pulled over by a police officer, by a CHP. And you begin to demand fairness and what's just. And he says, Oh, well, lucky for you, if you would like me to give you what's fair, I've actually been tailing you for the last hour. I've kept a list of your infractions. Here we go. What would you do at that moment? I'm good! Just give me the, give me the uh, speeding ticket or whatever it was. I confess it was a California stop, whatever that is. I didn't stop. Give me the ticket. I'll take just the first thing. Right? We often demand justice and demand what's fair until we get a clear picture of what that really looks like. First, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Let me ask you this. Is this fair? It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of the great church fathers referred to this as the great exchange. That God's grace was traded for our sin. That his punishment was was offered up to purchase our reward. Whether you get in late or whether you get in early on this, it doesn't matter to you. You're thrilled that you're in. You're thrilled that you got this deal. You can always tell someone who doesn't understand their sin if they're still talking about what they deserve and what's fair. Think about sin for a moment. Sin, from both pretty good people to blatant ongoing rebels, requires payment. It always has and it always will. Apple Watch is in the news right now. Let's say I had a brand new Apple Watch and I loan it to Jonathan and Jonathan breaks my Apple Watch. That's a sin right there. I can tell you that, sinner. Um, If that watch gets broken, um, someone incurs the cost. Either Jonathan comes and says, look, I broke your watch. I'm really sorry. Here's a brand new one in in the same style and everything, and here it is. That sin costs Jonathan something, right? Now, what if I just say, hey, Jonathan, I know you didn't mean to do it. It's all good. It's all, it's all even, Stephen. Is it really even, Stephen? No. Who incurs the cost? I do, right? I'm out the watch. Sin always breaks stuff, relationships, trust, generosity, society. It always breaks stuff. And sin always requires payment. Someone pays. Even if you just say, man, I forgive you. I've taken the cost of that in that moment. Once you understand this truth that you've sinned and payment is required, you're, you're forced with a choice. Some people go the, uh, the I pay system and some people receive the God pays system. The I pay system might be called the merit system. That is, I've offended you, I've broken the Apple Watch, I've sinned, payment is required. Let me pay that back. Let me work hard to pay that back for you. But there's a problem. There's ongoing sin day after day, and you could never, ever get out of that debt, ever. The God pays system is called the grace system. So you have the merit system, which the religious people were working hard for. They were working hard for that which can't be earned. And there's the grace system, which is that God says, I will incur the payment due for your sin. I put some lyrics in your notes this morning by... An artist called Lecrae, a song is called Boasting. Every day that I lie, every moment I covet, I'm deserving to die. I'm just earning your judgment. All he did was list two of the Ten Commandments. And it's already pretty convicting. I, without the cross, there's only condemnation. If Jesus wasn't executed, there's no celebration. Is it fair that God pays? No. Is it good? Yeah. In that sense, God is not fair, but God is just. Jot down Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Let me read it for you. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. Also, jot down verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The kingdom of God is for the early arrivers and the late arrivers. It's open to those who would appear really close to God and easy to get in and those really far away from God that you'd never imagine to come in. What was it that got the older brother in the prodigal son story so upset? Wasn't it the fact that he didn't think that the younger brother had earned the party that dad threw for him? Dad threw a giant party, was thrilled that he was home, dressed him in a robe and and put a ring on his finger, reinstating him. The older brother's upset. Why? Because he didn't earn that. He didn't work hard like the older brother had all these years. In all fairness, how can you possibly explain the rationale of the thief on the cross? Remember the thief on the cross? What was his contribution to the kingdom? How how long did he work in the vineyard for? He didn't serve the poor. He didn't go to a church service. He didn't even get baptized. In fact, even his conversion prayer, remember what it was? Here it is. Remember me. That's all we have recorded. That's all he could blurt out. And yet what happens? 11th hour rescue, right? A cup of flour and your sins are atoned for. That's all you can blurt out while you're hanging on a cross for your sin. You're in. Welcome. You're mine. You get to be in on all the inheritance. Do you see that 11th hour just under the wire rescues are cause for celebration? Even if you've been in for a long time, this shows off the power of God to save even the worst of sinners. Which if you're hearing me this morning, you start to understand there really is no such thing as a worst of sinners. Sin levels the playing field such that we are all the worst of sinners. There's no gradation between those who are great sinners and those who are worse sinners. In fact, sin puts us all in last place. And God, through the gospel, says, you've won. You're in first place. That grace may abound to all sinners. That's why we sing. That's why we celebrate. The Jews got upset at the late coming Gentiles getting in on this inheritance of God when they for centuries had had the law and performed the rituals and had done the deal. Those people who were raised in church sometimes roll their eyes when when pagans and rebels start coming and finding God and finding their way into the church. God, help us. That must grieve the heart of God at our lack of understanding. If we're ever rolling our eyes at those somehow more sinners than us finding God and coming in at the 11th hour. We weren't the first ones to miss out on this lesson. You can read this later on, but following this story is a mom of two of the the disciples that starts jockeying for for position. For what? For first place. Right? And in verse 24, we see the response of the other ten. It's anger. It says the others were indignant at this. I mean, Jesus had just said twice... The first shall be last, the last shall be first. He's trying to redefine greatness for them. What happens? Mom says, that's great and all. However, I've got these two boys and they're dynamite. Let me tell you about them. The fact that the others were angry means they didn't get it either. They were just upset. They didn't think of that first. Mom, where were you? I could have used a little help here. If you are still talking about getting what you deserve, chances are you don't get it. The one who no longer wants to discuss getting what she deserves is the one who realizes that she's getting more. Let me give you three fill-ins for our close this morning. These are ways to maybe be a part of the kingdom and not be a bitter worker who's upset at the generosity of our good God. Number one is another phrase that I heard a lot from my mom and dad growing up, and it's this, worry about yourself. Worry about yourself. And then what happens is the kids start to parrot that to one another. Because we hear it so often from mom and dad that we would use that argument hey, worry about yourself. Worry about yourself's pretty decent advice. How much worship of God and good on earth is squandered when we don't do this? When we pour all of our energy and attention and emotional savvy into worrying about other people. Jot down John 21. John 21, 19 is classic. If you have brothers, you just, this is perfect. I'll just read it for you, and you can check it out later. It says, then he said to him, Jesus said, follow me. This is post-resurrection. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. That would be John. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Isn't that classic brothers, Right? You're given an instruction. Ah, but wait a minute, what about him? He's just sitting there. What does he have to do? Listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. What Jesus had just said before he said, follow me, was he was describing the kind of death Peter would have. Peter would go and be crucified just like Jesus. That didn't sound like good news to Peter, just like it wouldn't sound like good news does. He said, Peter, go and die to yourself. Follow me. Follow my example. Oh, uh, what about him? And Jesus gives his reply. Worry about yourself. God gifts people according to where he guides them. He guides people on different paths. Some do a ton of work. Some don't do much work. Some are fit to go all through the day. Some have tons of gifts. Some apparently have tiny gifts. Some have really public gifts. Some have gifts that no one ever sees. Worry about yourself. If God's going to guide you there, he's going to gift you to get you there. For you to look at other people and judge yourself, it's nonsense. Makes no sense at all. Number two, stop measuring. I don't know who said this, but I borrowed this from somewhere and it was so good, I just had to say it. There is nothing left for the Christian to measure except the immeasurable grace of God and no one to compare yourself to except Christ. There is nothing left for the Christian to measure except the immeasurable grace of God and no one to compare yourself to except Christ. Psalm 46.10 says this, Cease striving and know that I am God. That could be, applicable in a lot of different scenarios. But when it comes to judging other people and looking across the table and wondering who's doing what and what about him, cease striving and know that I'm God. Because God is generous and good and all-powerful and giving, guess what? You can rest. You know what we tell our, our kids sometimes? We say, hey, great news. You are not... The parent. Usually that's said to them when they're coming and telling on a sibling or they're worried about something that someone else is doing. It's good news because being a parent is a responsibility. To our kids, I'd say, look, relax. You don't have to deal with this. Go play. Go spill something. Go explore. You're a kid. Go do kid stuff. You don't have to worry about this. That's my job. Secondly, it's good news because you're not very good at it, kids. You just aren't. You can't even drive, for Pete's sake. You don't have an objective stance on this. You don't see nearly as much as I do as the parent. So great news. You're not the parent. Maybe that's what God's saying to us sometimes, right? Chillax. Cease your striving. Know that I'm God. I'm the parent. You're the kid. Go spill things. Go explore. Go play. Go sing. Go enjoy each other. Cease striving and know that I am God. <clears throat> um, last one. Celebrate generosity. Look at verse 15 of Matthew 20, if you're still there. It says, Or do you begrudge my Generosity. He asks these rhetorical questions at the end of the story. And it's giving a picture of this, the fact that, look, I'm generous. Don't begrudge God's generosity. Isn't that one of the hardest things to do is to really celebrate great news of one of your siblings growing up? That's hard to do. It's hard to do in this room to see someone else get the blessing of God, the unmerited favor of God, and just go, man, I am just overjoyed in you. When you see that, know that God's at work in your life because that's not from the flesh. When you see that in other people, call that out. Hey, God's at work in our community group. Did you see that? This person is genuinely excited for something that they got, even though they've been longing for and praying for this for years. Wow. God, your spirit is at work in this place. That's not natural. That's supernatural. When you get grace, you are led away from worry and toward worship. If you don't get it, um, then sometimes what happens is God's generosity stirs up something opposite in us, stinginess, right? We see generosity of God, and all of a sudden we start worrying about what's, what's due us, and we start getting stingy with all of that. Everyone sins, and the wages, or what you deserve, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, don't begrudge this to anyone. Celebrate it. I want to close by reading a passage that brings together worship and celebrating generosity. It might just be a good little passage to pray as you say, God, I need to be changed in really celebrating generosity and not tallying up the score. Would you change my heart? Here's a passage that you might want to start with and turn it into a prayer every single day. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21 says this, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church,